the worst happens, only one of us survives, something of the other does too. No, you stay alive. They don't kill you, they'll take you north up to Huron land. You submit, you're here. You're strong, you survive. You stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. Drop it. Duncan and both come correct. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry. I was, I was, I was start, yeah, I, I, I was starting off a little smooth, and then I couldn't, I couldn't hold on to it. Such as, such as my curse, Duncan. Um, welcome to Duncan and Bo Come Correct, um, or as it's known in uh, Alabama, well, welcome to Duncan and Bo Come Correct. So, correct. Correct. Um, I, first of all, let's let's begin with an apologia in the classic Socratic sense, uh, yes. Duncan. Not necessarily an apology, but an explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to uh, to say I'm sorry for our delays, um, but shut up, first of all. <laughs> you get this shit for free. Yeah, it's it's free, and you've got a bunch of uh, X-Files stuff uh, real fast there. Um, and second of all, uh, so we, are in, we begin episode 10 today, uh, Duncan, um, and uh, the score is right now 5-4. With moi in the lead, yes, because um, I sound all exotic and European. I kind of miss Piggy, I'm afraid. <laughs> what moi? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well done for coming. <laughs> yeah. No, Kermy. Um, I, I can almost. It's it's not terrible. Um, which I don't I I don't feel any shame about because that's Frank Oz and. Uh, at some point, we are going to do a Frank Oz retrospective. That guy has done nothing but good movies. But yes, yeah, it's, it's almost inevitable now. So yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, back to the original point, Duncan. Quit distracting me. Uh, so <laughs> we are in episode ten. We uh, we are devoted to uh, getting the remainder of the season out on our regular fortnightly schedule. So uh, so s- stick with us. Thanks for bearing with us as uh, Duncan's been on holiday, or as well we say, <laughs> as we say in the United States, vacay. Which yeah. like? Uh, yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's what you're getting today, Duncan. <laughs> All right. So, episode ten, uh, which am am the episode you are listening to, gentle listeners. Uh, episode ten is all about survival. Mm-hmm. Um, we will be talking about two movies which are uh, are focused on that, as is our want on this show. Uh, before we do that, we always like to uh, to greet. My co-host, me compadre, I'm being a polyglot today, Duncan. Uh, uh, the man that I'm speaking to right now, Duncan McLeish, how the hell are you? I'm doing really well. I have missed this. Um, I've been off jet setting and and doing things, and <laughs> I, I have I have missed um, being here chatting to our listeners and discussing fantastic movies. From all genres, all walks of life, uh, but it's, it's good to be back, and we can see that we're we're kind of closing in to the end of the season now. There's not many episodes left, and I will say that not only do I think this season thus far has been better than season one, knowing what we're going to be doing over the next few episodes as well, I can only say that this show is going out with a bang. So season two is going to be pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, I I think that you are going to. Uh... 
you, the listener, are going to enjoy the the films that we're going to be talking about, uh, beginning with today and also previously. I'm I'm I'll tell you, I am such a big fan of the documentary episode from this season. Yeah. Um, it, it, that was a a collection of movies or a pair of movies that um hard to beat, hard to beat. But I feel like today, holy shit, Duncan. <laughs> there are there are two movies uh we are going to be discussing today that we will get to uh shortly um that i i kind of love both of these movies almost equally and mm-hmm. and we're we'll sort that out on the back end uh because there are some things i'm almost guaranteed uh to find you wrong about um <laughs> and oh no doubt no doubt <laughs> but we'll we'll get to that we'll get to that first uh as is tradition on the show we're going to be discussing uh, a little bit of what we have been watching. And Duncan, you said prior to the uh, the beginning of the show that you are catching up on movies that I have recommended to you, not within the formal setting of mm-hmm. the DBCC broadcast. Yeah, uh, things that, that have been kind of passing comments or messages in the last couple of months anyway, being um, in America and not having the ability to to sleep, which is my curse, uh, and having my Netflix subscription means that I get American Netflix when I go to America. And um, there was quite a few things on there that I really wanted to check out. First and foremost was um, Electric Boogaloo, the Canon documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fucking brilliant. Yeah, it's as good as Not Quite Hollywood, which is, you know, the same filmmakers, but it's as good as that, if not better. Yeah, it's it's just brilliant, in some respects, it, it reminded me of movies that I my brain had completely forgotten about. Um, or that way where you're speaking to someone else and you'll mention, oh, I remember that? There, there was a movie that I saw when I was young and there was a crazy scene where a ninja throws two picks into a gun and the guns explode. I can't remember what it is. And they were in this documentary. Um, basically, all these cheesy, cheesy movies, which I watched in my youth uh, as VHS um rentals were all in here and it's an infinitely fascinating story about not only the film industry but how as outsiders kind of anti-Hollywood in some respects but very much Hollywood in other respects these two guys kind of forged this really interesting path and set up some fantastic movie makers through making pretty awful movies and almost, almost making it, like, almost make it, if they hadn't spread themselves so thin at a certain point in the 80s, I think Canon would probably still be on the go. Um, yeah, there's I'd, an Ed Wood-esque quality to the, mm-hmm. the Golan Globa story. Definitely. Uh, yeah, just, we, we're not making great movies, but we're making a bunch of movies. Yeah, and I mean, some of these movies, I some of the movies I will argue <laughs> and defend, I mean, like, for every, like, there is, like, Maybe for every good movie, there's about ten bad ones. But um, I, I totally forgot that Life Force is a, a canon movie. Yeah, um, Life Force is a fucking mental movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's really great under the right circumstances. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I love it. I I I really do have a genuine fondness for that movie, and not just because of the puberty related uh, advances that that movie made for me. Oh yes. But (laughs) oh my goodness! Uh, But also, it is just—it's just bananas. It—it feels like a really kitchen sink kind of movie, which uh, um, I have been 
party to recently in, in other films. And, you know, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. I think for life force, it kind of works, uh, in its favor. And it's it, like, it looks really expensive too, even though well, it looks like it costs like millions upon millions upon millions. It, it really does look like a very expensive movie. Yeah. Despite being woefully dumb at, in places, but oh it, yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, watching. I mean, that was that was a great documentary. Um, I finally managed to check out, even though it is on UK Netflix for some reason. I waited till I saw it in America. Uh, I checked out another documentary, and that one was Lost Souls. Oh, also that. Oh, I love that documentary. Okay, that documentary is fucking awesome. And what I didn't know from watching that documentary is the amount of on-screen time a certain artist called Graham Humphreys gets, and that guy um, does a lot of stuff which I love and has done a lot of stuff, including the poster for my other podcast. He did all the artwork for that. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was pretty cool. But that's a, that's another one of those documentaries, which is just fascinating. Um, you know, like sometimes it's true what they say. Sometimes the story behind a movie is more interesting than the movie. Um, and just to hear the, you know, the shit that went on, and the making of that movie is just nuts. And unfortunately, broke mentally broke Richard Stanley, who is a like like those those first couple of movies he put out are fucking brilliant. You know, just like a really edgy, unique take on genre. Um, and to to basically see how his passion project ruined them. Um, so much so that they find him out in the woods like six months later living feral. Uh, it's just fucking crazy. Living like the boomerang boy from Road Warrior. Just. <laughs> so it was excellent. Um, on the plane over, uh, I checked out Ant-Man, which was one that you had talked about yeah. quite fondly not that long ago. That was really good. I really enjoyed yeah. that. That to me, I think I've now worked out how I can enjoy comic book movies and it's the movies that don't feel like comic book movies that I enjoy um, Deadpool to me didn't feel even though it is very much a superhero movie there was enough poking fun at the genre and enough humour in it to make me enjoy it I could focus on that and less about the things that happen in all superhero movies that tick me off um, but Ant-Man is essentially it's a it's a crime caper you know, it's, it's Ocean's Eleven with a micro suit um, and the casting was excellent, like really, 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 really good. And I was originally kind of, I was really looking forward to that project back when Edgar Wright was involved because I, I like him as a director. And then he famously walked off the project and then it was in limbo and then kind of things picked up and then Paul Rudd was attached. And I wasn't too keen on that, but thoroughly enjoyed it. Like really thought it was a very fun movie. I, I had the, I had its heart in the right place and treated itself once again, with a good sense of humour, um, which, I mean, there's plenty of comic book movies out there that are all doom and gloom and the world's about to end. That is nice to to remember that in the world of the fantastical, you can have a sense of humour, um, which that movie did. I thought it was, I actually thought it was one of the better ones that I've seen. Um, and it didn't do, it did surprisingly well, I think, better than was expected from the trouble it had. But it's not one that seems to be getting mentioned much at all. And I wonder if that is because it is less like the others. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And also, I think that because it doesn't have the scale of something like the Avengers or Captain America Civil War or something like that, 
Um, mm-hmm. it, I think it's looked at fondly by people who have seen it, myself included. Um, and I agree with you. I think it's just a, a fun little romp of a film and does a good job of introducing kind of a ridiculous character in a way that is as believable as you can expect it to be within the mm-hmm. confines of a movie like this. Um, the other thing I really like about Ant-Man is the, the big fight scene in the third act, like your big battle with your villain. The movie very smartly, and I wonder if this isn't maybe a carryover from Edgar Wright's involvement in the project, um, but the the movie very humorously and smartly cuts away from the action, especially when it's happening on kind of a micro scale, mm-hmm. and you get to see the real world, like human scale consequences of this action. And it feels so ridiculous and small. Like there, (laughs) there's a point where a train, uh, that is, you know, the Ant-Man scale is being hurled at the villain and they cut away to show this toy train, just kind of flop over (laughs) onto the table. (laughs) And it's like, Oh yeah. uh, You know, if, if I'm standing above this and seeing it, this would look like the most ridiculous, nothing ever. But it feels so dramatic and powerful in in the smaller ant scale and uh yeah, I think that movie's super fun. It and and it's the reason I haven't gone to see Batman versus Superman, uh Dawn of whatever. Um because that movie does not look like it it's there to entertain me. It's just there to pummel me into submission. Uh, yeah, I, I would argue, uh, and we have d- differing opinions on these movies, and I would say that this is probably for another podcast. Um, that movie has been getting a hold over the co- coals quite badly. I don't think for one second that movie is as bad as people are saying it is. I just don't, I don't think it can be. Um, and I would equally say I have seen all the trailers for Civil War, and I would say that that movie looks like it is devoid of humour as well. So, it looks, it just looks like a shinier, brighter version of the same movie. And I I know that's something that you will probably disagree with me about, but none of the spots for that movie at all have looked remotely fun. They've all looked like, yeah, we're going to fight, and I'm going to, this is my best friend, and I'm going to kill you. Um, And I'm just like, really... But Spider-Man, Duncan. Yeah, but Spider... Listen, let's be honest here. There's been a lot of Spider-Man films recently. How many have you actually enjoyed? I enjoy two of the Spider-Man movies a whole lot. Right, two out of the five, then. That's not a high ratio, right, but All right. You're right, you're right. This is another podcast. We're gonna, we'll are gonna we sort this out. At some point, we're just going to do, like, Duncan Vebo, Dawn of Superheroes or something. And it's just going to be us. <laughs> It's, it's going to be a pay-per-view event where we just... And I, I got to tell you, I got big meat hooks, Duncan. Okay. I mean, I got, you know, it, it, to quote Rocky Balboa, hurting bombs. Yeah, well, it's, that's a good segue into something here. I watched Creed. Oh, Duncan. All right. Yeah. Right, do you, do you want me to be honest about it, Bo? Yeah, go ahead. Be wrong about something, as you will. It was, it was all right. This, the episode. It was all right. It was Rocky. I, I like honestly, I I was watching it going from the opening moment. I know how this movie is finishing, um, and I was right. I, I I don't know. I mean, that's not to belittle the performances. The performances are great in it, but people are losing their shit over this movie as if it is something which is breaking the, the mold of this particular story, and it really isn't. It's just retelling it again. 
I, I don't I don't get the massive amount of love for that movie. It's a good movie. It's not an amazing movie, and Stallone's performance is not Oscar worthy. So why he I would agree with that. Yeah. Why, why he was even nominated for an Oscar in the first place blows my mind, considering some of the tremendous supporting actor performances that came out in twenty fifteen. I don't get that at all, other than to try and somehow set up some sort of scenario that he might be able to get an Oscar before he finally hangs up his... I, I don't know. I, I thought it was all right. I like. I didn't hate it, but I don't love it. I, I, like I say, I would much rather go back and watch Rocky, which I think does a lot of it better. It, yeah, I mean, Rocky is the superior film. Mm-hmm. Not arguing that. I think Creed is really good uh, because, it, yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the, you know how this movie ends... Maybe not precisely, but a general idea of how this ends before you sit down. Um, I don't think that's the point of a movie like this. I, I think the fact that they, they sort of reverse the, the struggle of like, originally Rocky is this character who comes from nothing and is trying to make something of himself. Yeah. And the, the character of Adonis Creed on the other hand, is a character who has literally everything handed to him should he want it. Yeah. And is struggling to make his name count for himself. Yeah. And I I think that's an interesting personal struggle. I think it gives it a a fun spin. I think Michael B. Jordan is is tremendous in the movie. Oh, I think the performances are great. Like I said, I just just don't think it's... Like, when I was hearing reviews of this movie... I was hearing words associated with it that made me think genuinely this was going to be you know, like when this movie finished, I was going to be sitting there going, well, you know, that that right there is the standard for boxing movies moving forward. And I didn't feel like that at all. I just felt like that is about the same standard as some of the best boxing movies I've ever seen. And I kind of wanted something different. I kind of think if you're going to revisit that sort of thing, Especially if you're going to revisit the the Rocky character. We've already had the perfect conclusion to that story. The Rocky Balboa story with the the final movie, Rocky Balboa. Um, And it atoned for the sins of the fifth movie. You know what I mean? It it gave us a great out for it. So he's now bringing this character back again. And I'm thinking to myself, if you're bringing that character back again, you need to do something completely different. And yeah, he's no longer fighting. He's now, he's doing the training side of things. but, But... it just like like I say, it just felt to me like a slightly inferior version of Rocky, and maybe that brings in more crowds now because Rocky's an old film now. I mean, it's it's a fair age, and maybe that will bring people to it. I just don't think it's as amazing as as the critics seem to do, which is the thing that confused me the most. Because critics can be overtly mean about a movie if it looks like it's just basically treading on the footsteps of movies that came before it. Um, but this one seemed to get a free pass. And I don't understand how this movie can get a free pass and other ones can. Because it elicits joy, Duncan. And I know that's not something <laughs> that you traffic in. But yeah, is it is it is it not groundbreaking? Sure. Uh you know, but Creed has a good story, it has a great heart, the the romance that is a B plot uh in the film is surprisingly effective, I think, uh, much more so than most throwaway, like, how do we get the girls into this, you know? Like, I think that relationship means something in the movie. 
Um, I think the boxing scenes are really exciting. And, and there's a scene that is the equivalent of the gonna fly now scene from mm-hmm. the original Rocky that I think is really thrilling and, and kind of inspiring. And, um, yeah, I, I think it works. Uh, yeah. It's not reinventing the wheel, but, and it's not as good as the original Rocky, but I would put it in the same ballpark as Rocky Balboa. Yeah, but I've already seen Rocky Balboa. Right, but this isn't Rocky's movie, it's Creed's movie. It's about this new character. And I and I like this character enough that if you had taken Rocky out of this film, I still would have enjoyed it. Well, let me put it this way. Are you clambering for a sequel? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like really? to see, yeah, I'd like to see what they do with this character. I'd like to see him because now that he's established himself as a real contender and a real boxer, yeah, I would love to see what happens with this character. But do you not just think you're just going to basically see the Rocky story part two? You know what I, I mean? You're like, I think that's, that's the issue is like, yeah, this movie was surprisingly successful, more than we were expecting. So let's have a sequel. And I think it's just going to now move into the same beats as Rocky 2 and Rocky 3. And I'm like, I've already... Right, but I'm not... Like, I'm not in charge of Creed 2, obviously. (laughs) Are you not, Bo? I I wish I were. Uh, Actually, I don't. (laughs) Because I'm in the same boat you are, where I think... If I think of a sequel to Creed, I think of Rocky 2. And I want want someone smarter than me to say, no, 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 Rocky 2 has been done. Like, I, I will enjoy Creed less, I suppose, if the sequel does feel like, you know... If you use the college SAT analog here or analogy of if Creed 2 is to Creed, what Rocky (laughs) 2 is to Rocky, then I will be a bit disappointed in that because I wanted wanted to do something different. Yeah, I just, I I don't, but you didn't get that much different with Creed. I know you're saying that the, the invert part, and I, I will give it that, that, that to me was, Something I did find interesting. And yes, the, the romance plot to me was more interesting than the actual fighting plot. Um, but I, I just, I, I don't see, I don't see where you now take that character. I, I don't trust Hollywood to, to take that character yeah. in an interesting place. I take that I suspect that Hollywood will retread over more ground, which comes out of Rocket. I mean, which were, I mean, a hugely successful franchise of movies. Let's, let's be honest. And if you were gonna, if you were gonna look at something to, to emulate, then, I mean, that really is the benchmark for boxing movies, like big, like Hollywood hit boxing movies. I just don't, like I said, I didn't hate it. I, I liked it. I thought it was good. I just didn't think it was amazing. And maybe, Maybe critics have overhyped it for me, but I really sat down expecting the second coming, and it was not that. Is it Digstown? No. No, but look, there you go. There's a great example. I love Digstown. Actually, right, I, I, everyone loves like, Digstown. This might be sacrilegious on the show. I actually prefer Digstown to Rocky too. Oh yeah, I would agree with that. Oh, that's okay then. Yeah. Um, All right. So yeah, so, yeah. So I watched that. So I got that one out of the way. Um. And I checked this movie that you haven't mentioned, and on paper I should hate it, Bo. And I'm going to try and defend it here. And if you've not seen it, what I'm about to say is going to make you question question me quite a bit. I checked out the new Sandra Bullock movie. <laughs> is this I, our Brandis Crisis? Yeah. And I All right, I've seen this, yeah. I loved it. Um. Well, that's not correct, but that's all right. Go ahead. I, I have I have some complaints about it, but 
I thought she was really good in it. I thought Billy Bob Thornton, like, once again, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, just yeah. put that man in anything now, and it, he just is fucking great. You can make him, like, if you watch um, the first season of Fargo, you know, he's he's a, he's a killer in that movie, and he's quite, like, you know, a malicious, evil killer, and he can be quite menacing in that movie. And he feels menacing. He's a very slight, very thin, aged man now, but he still feels menacing. I watch him in this one and he just feels Teflon. You know, like nothing will stick to him. He feels like the ultimate media manager. You know what I mean? He just he just completely feels like like nothing will stick to this guy and he's perfect in the role. And I would never have casted someone like him to be in a movie like this. Um, I thought the setting was really interesting. I thought it was funny. I laughed quite a lot at it. Like I say, I, th- I thought Sandra Bullock was trying something different and actually working. My only my only gripe with it was it maybe wasn't satirical enough. Um, and to be honest with you, when you're dealing with the Bolivian government, I don't really know if I want a, a highly satirised political media drama comedy around that. I think it would have been far more interesting if it had been set in America, but then you take some of the the heart of the movie out. But for the most part, I thought it was really entertaining. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Have you seen Into the Grizzly Maze yet? I have seen Into the Grizzly Maze. Oh, it's so good. Speaking of Billy <laughs> Bob Thornton. All right. it's, it's an excellent fucking movie. But yeah, I didn't, there, was, there was very few things. Like I say, I, I would have maybe went a bit more satirical with it like i would have constant maybe maybe went a bit more political with it but then i kind of yeah. thought about one whose audience is to where the movie's set and to me the infinitely more interesting version is to do, set that in america now um because like there's some crazy things going on over there where you know sandra bullock has to somehow get donald trump elected um, <laughs> You know, what I mean that to me is that that to me is obviously an infinitely more interesting way of doing things. Right? How do we say I hate brown people in a commercial without saying I hate brown people? Yeah, but I thought there I thought there was there was a lot of messages behind it, which really I I love this idea of you know selling things on crisis because that's how politicians that's how the world now is, and it's a very American way of doing things, and it's it, it's no surprise to me that the two campaign managers are American. You know, in this movie, and both of them are using every kind of underhanded manoeuvre they can think of to discredit the other person. And ultimately, she succeeds. But she succeeds by giving uh, the, the, the presidential chair to probably the one person that shouldn't have it. You know, and the, the, the signs are there all along that he shouldn't have it. Um, and ultimately, she helps him get in there and... She then, it, I love the fact that she then ha, is at ground level with the after effects. Um, yeah, I, my biggest problem with our Brandis crisis, um, I, I agree with you. I think the performances are generally good in the movie, and, and I always love Billy Bob Thornton in pretty much anything, mm-hmm. um, especially into the Grizzly Maze, which we'll get to. But oh, uh, so good. Uh, <laughs> my problem with the movie is I felt like it ended at the end of Act Two. Like, I, w- I want to see that character's turn not just in the last couple of minutes of the movie, yeah. but I want to see some of the repercussions. Like I just walked away from that movie feeling like I had seen part of the character's journey and not enough to satisfy me. I, I can, I could see that. Yeah. I mean, at the very end where you see what she has done after the effect, that to me also sounds like a really interesting story. 
Um, and yeah, maybe the movie does pull back from that very, very quickly and move on to something. But I mean, the the movie for a comedy is is like an hour and three quarters, and at no point did I feel like I wanted to check my watch and how far we're into it. It flew in. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think it dealt with some really interesting discussion points in a way which. And I, every time I want, I feel like I'm just beating on Americans, and I don't mean it because you are fantastic people, and the the majority of Americans I know are actually very well educated and all the rest. But I know that that's not indicative of a lot of moviegoers. A lot of moviegoers go to see a Sandra Bullock movie to switch their brain off, not switch it on. And I thought there was a lot of messages which would appeal to a lowest kind of the lowest common denominator in terms of thinking without being preachy. And that's the danger. A movie like this. Can be, could be very preachy, you know what I mean? Like, look at the people that we elect and all the rest, and it doesn't do that, and part of me wants it to do that, because uh, that's the movie, ultimately, I really want to see, but, it, you know, I, I don't think that's the movie that it should be at the same time. Um, I, you know, there's, there's a potential of doing things less or doing things more that spoil the movie, and I think they got the balance quite right with this one um, and I enjoyed it a whole hell of a lot if you'd, sa- if you'd said to me you're going to be travelling on a, p- a plane journey and there's going to be nothing left for you to watch on that plane journey except the new Sandra Bullock movie chances are 75% of the time I would tell you that I'd much rather sit in silence than watch right. it <laughs> and you I'm going to need a parachute yeah yeah. well that's kind of how I roll um, and it was I didn't realise Billy Bob Thornton was on it, and that was the only reason I switched it on, and I found myself enjoying it a lot more than I expected to. Um, like like a hell of a lot more than I expected to. I actually thought she was really good in it, and I kind of think... Bullock, you know, she did that movie where she got the Oscar, and um, she did get an Oscar, didn't she? Uh, did she get one for Gravity? Is that... Is that I'm what talking she about the, the American football one that she did. You know, the guy that's... Oh, The Blind Side. Right, right, right. Yeah, did she not get an Oscar for that? Um, I think. She was at least nominated. and Yeah, so she's, she's, yeah. Been, she's been at the top end of things, and she she's done Miss Congeniality too. So she's been at the bottom end of things as well, Bo, and movies like Heat, which are not good. Um, that is Heat, isn't it, with um, Melissa McCarthy? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was, it was not a very good movie. Uh, so she's done both sides of that. To me, this... This is a groove which I have never really seen many movies of her doing this sort of thing, where she is tempering that sort of comedic side, that kind of mischievous side she's got against a more serious subject matter. And I would like to see more performances like because she handled herself really well in it. And like I say, Billy Bob Thornton on everything, Billy Bob Thornton for president. I mean, you're not going to get an argument out of me. And by the way, from our news ticker, Duncan, uh, Sandra Bullock did win for The Blind Side and was nominated I, for Gravity. So I, I thought she, I, I remember her getting that was the year she got the Oscar and the Razzie in the same year. Right, she, did, right. she didn't get the Razzie for Blind Side. Whatever the comedy movie she Forces put out. Forces of Nature was the name of the movie. No, wait. Not Forces of Nature shit. Forces was another one with Ryan Reynolds? Is that not? No, I, I, I thought it was the one with. I thought Ben Affleck was. Yeah, maybe I've got. Uh, <laughs> All I remember is she got she got both. Um, yeah, and I was, yeah, yeah. That, that must have been an interesting year. Um, was so, she the one that uh, went to the Razzies to accept? I think 
I think she did. Yeah, yeah which I, I, that 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 kind of makes me like it even more. Yeah, like I think Sandra Bullock's really likable, and I kind of have a soft spot for the movie The Blind Side, and I'm not proud of that, but. Like, that is one of the most openly, emotionally manipulative movies I've oh, ever seen. Oh, it's an Oscar movie. It's, a, it's yeah. an Oscar That's That is a movie that has been made by people that have said, this movie's going to get us an Oscar. It's, <laughs> it, it, like, if you could make a movie out of the line that Ed Harris delivers in radio. Yes. Where yeah. he says, we weren't teaching radio, radio was teaching us. <laughs> and you just gave that line to a screenwriter and said, I want you to make a movie starring Sandra Bullock and a young African-American football player based on this line. It's the blind side. I was wondering, like, the, the thing that confused me most about that movie is it's obviously written as an Oscar movie. I was very surprised that Tom, <laughs> Tom Hanks wasn't in the background somewhere. It was, it was that thick, you know, it was laid on that thick for Oscars. Yeah, no, he is. He should have been somewhere in it. He's in it. He's just one of the fans uh, of the football player. <laughs> and you just see him wave at one point. He's like, hey, hi, I'm Tom Hanks. Just checking in. Vote for uh, this film. Um, so, um, I'll, I'll, I'll very, very quickly finish off here. This is my good, right? Okay, okay. I was like, talking about good. My good is that I went to see a little movie called The Witch. Um, and I fucking loved it. I thought yeah. it was really, 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 really good. And it appears to be 2016's um, It Follows or The Babadook in that it has come out and it has basically divided horror fans right down the middle with 50% being in love with the movie and 50% really not liking it. Um, I fall into the camp of those that really enjoyed it. I thought the there is a bleakness um, <laughs> in complete contrast to Creed. Um, this is probably why I loved it. There is a bleakness uh, and punishing nature about that movie that makes me happy. Um, but I thought there was some really interesting points in the movie about like a father's pride. You know that that great kind of pride comes before the fall um, of how how he basically would rather be ostracised by a town that, you know, that asks him to capitulate to their beliefs because he thinks he's more holy. And then the further we move into the movie, we find out that actually he is not a perfect man at all. He's a thief and all the rest, you know what I mean? And that side of things really, really captured me more than anything to do with witches. The family aspect of it, I thought was fantastic. I thought the casting was great. I know the dialogue is fucking quite a lot of people up um, and that the director went for, you know, spent a lot of time making sure that the dialogue was very authentic to the 1700s. And he, he has done that. I, I thought it was excellent. Um, I really, really enjoyed I, Like I went with two friends. One hated it. One liked everything except the end, which uh, confused me. Um... And me who loved it, and I, I genuinely thought, uh, as you know, I genuinely as one of my favourite movies of the year thus far. I thought it was absolutely fucking incredible. I, I found myself thinking about it for two days afterwards, just like milling certain bits over in my mind, just thinking that you know that was really clever. And yeah, I think that movie is really, really, really good. Um, 
and I, I think it's done fairly well as well, which is great because sure. this guy's first time director, um, and I would really like to see him hopefully do more stuff within the genre because I think, I think this is the after effect of. I, I think everything kind of, in my opinion, all points back to House of the Devil now. Like House of the Devil came out, and I think it almost allowed filmmakers to kind of revel in this idea of the slow burn, like basically slow down the tempo of horror movies. And we've still got movies that are coming out there, MTV quick edits and, you know, jump scares and all the rest. And we, we keep getting, like, movies now. Once a year, we're getting at least one cinematic release that's coming out that's kind of almost in contrast to that. And The Witch certainly feels like that for this year. Um, incidentally, they've all come out about the same time as well. They've all come out about the same time of year. The Babadook, It Follows, and... Uh, and the witch are all yeah. they've all been released about the same window, and I think it's. Have you checked it out yet, Bo? I have not, and I feel uh, stupid for not having <laughs> seen it yet uh, because it sounds like a movie that's totally in my wheelhouse. I just haven't, I just haven't gone to the theater recently. I mean, in yeah. the last time I did, I saw Deadpool because uh, that's what I was in the mood for. I was in for in the mood for something big and loud and weird. Yeah, and and Deadpool certainly delivered that. So. Um, no, I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm, you know, I, I of course loved, you know, it follows and the Babadook and that kind of movie and, and certainly house of the devil. So, uh, yeah, it, it sounds like a movie I'd, I'd really like, or at the very least like to experience for myself. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I don't know. I, if here, here's my problem, Duncan, um, I'm one of many, but <laughs> I, if I go see it, then I got to deal with the public watching it. And lately <laughs> my experience uh, with that has been negative. Yeah. Um, and, and so my, this weekend, in fact, I was thinking like, I ought to, I ought to get out and see the witch or I could just watch Baskin, which I've heard a lot of interesting things about. Yeah. And I don't have to leave my home. Yeah. It's on, it's on my, uh, it's on my list of things to watch. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. I've heard a lot of good things. Um, and interestingly enough, I watched uh, The Witch in a cinema which had, I would say, maybe about 20 people in it, and you could have heard a pin drop. That's yeah. how quiet it was. It was just like people really got into the movie, and that's generally not my cinema-going experience at all. Generally, I'm surrounded by people that are obnoxious and I want to throw things at. Um, so that's my, that's my good. All right, what's um, the bad? Let's hear it. <laughs> you, you couldn't wait for me to talk about a bad movie, Bo. You can't I, wait, could you? I enjoy it. You know, it's a little bit of schadenfreude. I, l I like to hear you uh, complain about things. <laughs> oh, right. Well, oh, strap yourself in, Bo. Strap yourself in. It's the uh, only way I sit. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> uh, my bad movie's Creed. Not my <laughs> Oh, you son of a bitch. I just like playing with your emotions, just like just like picking on them. Um, <laughs> I've checked out, and it's for an upcoming recording. I went back, and this is a movie I've seen before, so I I really shouldn't watch it again. But I did, and I I may have complained about it. No, you complained about it. Um, I'm doing a, a guest appearance on a certain podcast called Gillen Roscoe's Bedacious Horror Podcast. Uh, oh, I'm I'm familiar. It, yeah, the Boho Pole, which is now back in action. Um, and we're doing an episode on Eli Roth. Um, oh, God damn it. 
and, and which we're talking about Green Inferno, which is a movie that I complained about here. Another one, Knock Knock, <laughs> which I saw at the cinema, and I put myself through it again to do that show. And I know you complained about it a couple of shows before, but that fuck that movie. It is rotten. It's so fucking rotten. It's terrible. It's terribly written. It's poorly acted. And I just feel nothing when what I feel numb when watching it. I don't feel fucking anything. I feel like when I'm watching it, I should like at least be like super angry at the way that he is so sexistly portrayed women in his movie. But I don't even feel that though. I've I've got to the point now that I am I, I basically have like some sort of I'm in shock when I watch these movies now. I think that's what it is. I, I like literally. I, I'm at that stage now that you could like get a safety pin and put it right through my tongue, and I wouldn't feel it. That's how numb I am to the experience of watching an Eli Roth movie. And it's it's just a fucking bad movie. Like it's a really really bad movie. I don't even think it's particularly shot well either, which would at least be a crutch I leaned back on with Eli Roth movies. Um. There isn't. I, I genuinely don't think there's anything about the movie that I like at all. Uh, fuck that movie. Yeah, yeah. It's you know we've talked about it on, on that in particular movie on this show before, uh, so I won't reiterate too much. But yeah, it's terrible. It, it's front to back. It is an awful movie filled with awful ideas and poor writing. And yeah, it's I and I can tell you it. I Eli Roth thought he was making a movie with a feminist statement and all he was doing was uncovering this really weird fear of women that seems to exist within him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you can see it most in knock knock, but I think you can also see it in, uh, uh, aftermath or aftershock or whatever. Aftershock. That movie, aftershock. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's where I first realized, like, I think Eli Roth, has a very weird relationship with the idea of the feminine. Um, so yeah, it's yeah, terrible movie, but <laughs> it's, I can't, I, I can't elucidate on that anymore because it just, it's so infuriating when I yeah. think of that movie being a thing that people made and pointed to, like it was a good thing or a real movie, a cinematic release over here, Bo, and lots of cinemas. That's what annoys me. It got released in cinemas over here and advertised in a way which made me want to go and see it. Yeah, <laughs> that should be I, I hate myself. Yeah, I hate myself as much as I hate the movie for going to see it, as I should have known better. Uh, all right. Do we need to <laughs> do we need to punch that movie anymore in the face? I, I feel like oh, I don't know. I think next season we could do some more damage to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just gonna revisit Knock Knock every two or three episodes and just remind our listeners: don't ever see Eli Ross not Knock Knock. It's yeah. just just awful. <laughs> what uh, you you've been checking it? Okay. So here's the good movie, and I'm not sure that you will enjoy it, Duncan, because it's a movie about human emotions. <laughs> Count me out. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how, as I was watching, I was like, man, this movie would be great uh, for almost anyone, uh, but Duncan may not enjoy it. Um, <laughs> but the movie uh, I would recommend to our listeners is uh, Short Term 12. Um, oh, I heard of this one. It is uh, it stars Brie Larson, 
Oh, I uh, like Carr. Yeah, and and this was kind of her breakout role. Uh, prior to Room, this was the movie that got her a lot of attention. In fact, uh, no, we may double check this later, but I believe she may have been nominated for this, um, or at the very least was was critically lauded and and rose to uh, um, several filmmakers' attention because of her performance in Short Term Twelve. But Short Term Twelve is um, about a facility that handles children in between foster care uh, or uh, basically this is a a limbo, a a rest stop in between, Hey, these kids are in crisis. They're in a bad situation. They come to these short term homes and then they're adopted or go to a foster family or some of them just end up getting released after they age out of it and that kind of thing. And Brie Larson is one of the, um, the employees of the short-term facility, in this case, short-term number 12, uh, hence the title. And it's a very slice-of-life kind of film about, uh, at the beginning, Brie Larson is um, one of the counselors. Like, she's not she's not a therapist or anything, but she and her uh, boyfriend and uh, a new employee and a couple of other people basically just keep the peace. They're, they're the day-to-day employees that aren't the therapist in in this situation. They're just there to make sure that there's no violence erupting and trying to keep everyone calm and stable and entertained and all that stuff. And basically surrogate parents in a lot of ways. And she finds out that she's pregnant and as the film goes along that you learn that she has suffered abuse, much like the people who are uh, the kids that are in this home. And that's why she relates so well to them. And it's also dredged up these emotions when a girl comes in who has uh, exhibited signs and, and made indications that she comes from an abusive home and is about to go to live with her father, who is the abuser. And then all of a sudden Brie Larson is, uh, her character is dealing with all this and the idea of should she keep a child or not. And, you know, her boyfriend is this, like, maybe the most unbelievable thing about the movie is how, like, warm and understanding and funny her boyfriend is. Um, because he's just too nice a guy almost. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, you know, it's a very character driven piece and, and, there are some moments uh, in dealing with some of the, the characters, uh, particularly the kids, that feel a little sugary, you know? I mean, like, it deals with some heavy issues and, and does so in a, a fairly tactful way. Um, but, you know, like any movie where you're talking about, you know, children in danger and the people who care for them, there's uh, there's a little bit of melodrama there. But it, it worked for me, and I thought... Uh, Brie Larson was just fantastic in it, and um, it's really good. Yeah, I would recommend it. I, with the caveat to you, Duncan, that <laughs> that Homo sapiens will be interacting with one another in emotional ways. Have you watched Room yet? I haven't watched Room yet. I, I, in a right, weird way, so you, it, you need to watch Room then. Yeah. I, I know I do in a weird way, like short term 12 had been on my list for a while. And when room came out, like Brie Larson, I, I knew of Brie Larson because of short term 12 and what was being said about her performance in that. So mm-hmm. in a weird way, short term 12 was the homework I felt like I needed to do before seeing room. Yeah. Um, but I will, I will. And probably within the next week, 
So when we come back again, I'll be like, oh, Duncan, room is so good. <laughs> um, but uh, let me go on. And, and everyone should check out Short Term 12. I think it's a really it, – it's a surprisingly touching film about very difficult subject matter. And it doesn't exactly treat that subject matter lightly, but it's not dour. Mm-hmm. So um, the bad movie, though, Duncan – um, this is going to serve as sort of a back-end plug, and I kind of apologize for that, but I have been watching a lot of Asian horror cinema of late. <laughs> now, there is a good reason for that, and I, I dare say at the end of this podcast, we can pimp a great deal as to why yes. you are putting yourself through this. Yeah. and What did you watch? <laughs> okay, so a lot of it is great, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of it is not so great. And I want to I want to preface this by saying also, this is not a terrible movie. It's just the worst movie I saw recently. <laughs> um, because I haven't seen anything that's just like I I don't have a Ouija experiment in my back pocket. I don't have anything <laughs> that is just an abomination. I just have a movie that was kind of disappointing. So uh, I saw this uh, South Korean horror film. It's called Yoga. Yeah, it's relatively recent, and and one of the reasons that I I happened upon it is uh, uh, because I wanted to see some more recent stuff in addition to some of the classics, you know. Um, And it is the story of a television home shopping host who is uh, a lady, a pretty, pretty lady, um, who is about to lose her job because uh, a prettier, younger lady is uh, first paired with her and then sort of overtakes her job. And so then she runs into an old friend of hers who looks dramatically different in, in terms of being just like almost statuesque in terms of her beauty. And... Uh, so our main character is like, hey, what the hell? You used to be kind of ugly, and we made fun of you about that, and now you're super hot. And she's like, yeah, I started taking this yoga class, and here's where you need to go to take it. And it turns out that the uh, the yoga class in question promises um, intense physical transformation um, and and youth and beauty and, and uh, rejuvenation. And, uh, yeah. And then, uh, what, what follows is a pretty routine, uh, horror movie about, you know, people being reincarnated and weird shit happens. And, and it, it just was, it just didn't have the imaginative, uh, qualities and, and some of the weirdness and some of the, um, you know, visual flair of a lot of Asian horror cinema. And it just came across feeling very, very rote and run of the mill and at the end of the day just not very impactful it didn't didn't really have any crazy imagery or or extreme imagery that um i kind of associate with a movie like this yeah yeah and it just yeah it was it was a little disappointing but uh again not not a total train wreck but you know there are so many better examples of movies like this out there yeah. That I would just say, like, hey, if you're a big Asian horror movie fan and you see yoga come up, eh, it's not the worst thing you can do, but it, it's you're not going to walk away from it with a vastly different uh, 
worldview or anything. It's not going to change your life to see the movie Yoga, Twisted. Mm-hmm. What was it? Mind, body, and tortured. Wait, no, mind, spirit, and tortured body. I think is the the subtitle of it. Um, oh God, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. You know, but if you want to see like attractive Korean women doing yoga, maybe mm-hmm. that's kind of your movie. But you know. Other than that, there's not a lot to recommend about it. Um, <laughs> yes. Sadly, sadly, you know, I've I've been watching a lot of really great movies uh, of late, and um, that was just not one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Not gonna make the cut, Duncan. <laughs> uh, so that, now that that's all out of the way, yeah, I feel like we've we've caught up completely yeah. now. Yeah. So, listeners, thank you. You now have. Uh, journeying through our cinematic uh, experiences of late, but uh, the time for pleasantries is done, Duncan. It's uh, no more Mr. Nice Guy. (laughs) Z, plural. (laughs) We are here to do battle. And Mm -hmm. uh, as I mentioned in the upfront, today's theme is survival. What better, what better theme, I ask you, Duncan, than survival for a show that is so close. We are, uh, as I said, five to four going into episode 10 a chance for me to extend my lead to an almost unmanageable two-film lead. (laughs) Or to tie back up yet again and prove that everything we have done uh, thus far is completely meaningless. (laughs) And only the last three shows really matter. It should should be worthwhile mentioning just at the start here that, yes, we are very close to the end, and yes, you have a one-point lead at the cost of your Winter Beast card, though. My Winter Beast has been played. Uh, but you, you came to me with a, a, the film The Conversation. What the hell am I going <laughs> to do, Duncan? I got no I got no options there. <laughs> I got to Winter Beast it up. <laughs> yeah, so I, I still I still, uh, still have one. I still have an ace in the hole, so to speak. Uh, yeah, a Winter Beast in the hole, which <laughs> is uncomfortable which is worth, which is, yeah, A Winter Beast in the hole is worth more than two in the bushes, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, way more. You got a winter beast in the hole. You got you got a flock. In the bush. Uh, uh, what's the first movie this week then? Okay, so my the first movie is my recommendation to you, mm-hmm. and I have delivered unto you, Duncan, the film Jeremiah Johnson, uh, which is uh, Robert Redford uh, in I. I would argue one of his more against type performances. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and also one of his more interesting performances. Um, it is, uh, IMDB says about Jeremiah Johnson, uh, a mountain man who wishes to live the life of a hermit becomes the unwilling object of a long vendetta by Indians and proves to be a match for their warriors in one-on-one combat on the early frontier. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm totally with that uh, <laughs> that synopsis, but we'll get in, into that more. Uh, it is directed by Sidney uh, Pollock. Who uh, I love. Yes. Uh, it is written in part by John Milius, mm-hmm. who went on to do uh, Apocalypse Now, of course, as well as Conan the Barbarian, a woefully underrated film, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it is very much a survival film. Uh, I, I love the movie a lot. I think it's gorgeous. I think it has some interesting things to say. Uh, and 
in the course of the film, uh, Jeremiah Johnson, as played by Robert Redford, as he heads into uh, the wilds, into the mountains, into the Rockies, Duncan, um, he comes uh, he comes through a series of circumstances to be rewarded by an Indian tribe, a uh, Crowfoot tribe. Um, and it turns out uh, his reward for his behavior is a bride which he is somewhat uncomfortable with initially. And uh, the scene we're going to hear right now, Duncan, is uh, that scene in which, via a translator associate of Jeremiah Johnson's, uh, he tries maybe not to get married, and uh, and that doesn't work out so well. Um, so we will listen to that and be right back right now. In honor of your magnanimity and your courage, I give Ma fille. It's funny. The danger is over, Jeremiah. He has thought of a better gift to give you. His daughter. Huh? Now you have a son, you need a wife. Oh, I don't want a wife. He says you'll be very happy. I mean, il dit, il est, uh, um, is that word? Uh, yes. Très content avec uh, votre ville. Ah, bon. He may speak well and read the Bible, but he's still an engine. And his rules is his rules. If you value your hair, you will get married. Duncan, that yes. is the fine words of Robert Redford. Um, but my opinion of this film, which is quite high, uh, does not matter in this scenario. What did you make of Jeremiah Johnson? Well, not just your opinion. Since posting that I was watching it, my Facebook page has been inundated by people telling me how much they love this movie. Yes. Turns out there's a lot of love out there for Jeremiah Johnson. Um, I wasn't even aware of this one, and it, it does surprise me a little bit because I do quite like the Robert Redford. I think he's... a uh, and he's a really good actor. Um, and I do quite like the Sidney Pollock. Um, Three Days of Condor is like one of my favourite kind of spy CIA sort of movies. Um, I love that one a whole hell of a lot. Um, I, I also do really like The Firm, um, which is one of the very few Tom Cruise movies that I really enjoy. Um, and when you have Wilford Brimley as a... <laughs> <laughs> Wilford Brimley, not talking about diabetes and uh, as an enforcer for a legal firm alongside the fantastic Gene Hackman, uh, you know you're in for a treat. So he's, he's a great director. He's a really, really, really good director. So I kind of feel like I should have heard of this movie. I genuinely have never heard of this movie before. Um, so sitting down was going to be an interesting experience. And there are a lot of things I really liked about this movie. I think Robert Redford, like you said, is kind of cast against type. I would never imagine putting Robert Redford in a film set about this time period. It, to me, has always felt like very much the... In all the movies, he's felt like the modern man, if you know what I mean. Even up to his, his later performances, he kind of feels like, you know, he's the aged version of the modern man. Um, so to kind of put him back... And this sort of setting felt like a bit of a stretch to me. Um, plus, his character starts off in a position of being kind of vulnerable and not not well-equipped to survive, which, once again, is not 
the Robert Redford that's usually portrayed on screen. Robert Redford is usually a very confident, experienced person um, who doesn't necessarily need to seek help from anyone. So that kind of surprised me. And this movie kicks off with with, uh, Jeremiah Johnson, who has his own theme song in this movie, which... I'll be honest with you, that I didn't like, but we'll it's, get on to that. <laughs> it's, it's not a great theme song, but the fact that you have a theme song <laughs> is pretty, still cool. It's still cool, yeah. Back in the day when you could have that in a movie. Um, yeah, so he is he's kind of decided he's going to live out in the hills um, or mountains, so to speak, and he is woefully unprepared for this. And he's taken under the tutelage of a guy called Bearclaw, who is a great character played by Will Gear. He's... Oh, Probably my favourite thing in the movie, um, next to his other friend that he meets that we'll get onto later on. Um, and uh, Bearclaw is only after the grizzly. That's all he wanted. He wanted to hurt grizzly. Um, and we get some fantastic scenes with him, including one where he basically lures a bear into his shack, shuts the door, and lets Robert Redford deal with it. Which kind of reminded me of uh, a movie that we both love, The Battery, where he's trying to get the guy like to kill a zombie basically locks a zombie in his bedroom with him and um, just says have at it uh, so it kind of reminded me of that sure and he, he basically through his companionship with Bearclaw he learns quite a bit about survival about techniques about how to hunt and um, ultimately sets off on his own path and is doing quite well for himself uh, until he eventually comes across um, what appears to be another cabin where a woman's family has been slaughtered, except for her and her son. Um, the woman has gone a bit crazy by this in grief uh, and bequeaths her son to to Jeremiah Johnson uh, to get him to safety, and he doesn't necessarily do that if anything he kind of adopts him and carries on uh, where we then meet the second greatest character in this movie a bell a, a guy by the name of del glue <laughs> del glue one of me um who is oh is fucking nuts when we find him he's buried up to his neck in the sand um and they and have a pretty chummy conversation they have <laughs> a pr- <laughs> pretty great conversation <laughs> yeah um, as as one of these things where you can kind of you can you kind of want to trust this guy, but at the same time he's been out in the sun for a while, so that might not be a great idea. And ultimately, he helps him. Jeremiah Johnson helps him out, and then aims to help him get his horses back, which he tries to do without spilling bloodshed. But uh, Goo wants retribution. Um, and he wants that by he's got a very Indian outlook a very American Indian outlook on things in that he kills his enemies and scalps them um, and then we lead into the ceremony that you were talking about where basically they come across another tribe and he inherits a wife so Jeremiah Johnson has this wife that he doesn't want who doesn't speak English and he doesn't speak the language to her either um, and their their child who's for all intents and purposes mute um, and they set off and finally finally find peace and happiness and um, everything looks like it's going quite well until the local cavalry appears on scene and asks for his assistance which he at first is reluctant about but 
ultimately accepts it and they need to get back to their get back to their wagons. Um but in order to do that, they have to pass through sacred ground, which Jeremiah Johnson warns them about. They don't listen to him, so they pass through sacred ground and um while he's away, uh the Indians aren't happy and they, they murder his um his his wife and his adopted son. He comes back to find their bodies and then after that there's a hit pretty much, you know, put on a good old fashioned mob boss hit put on right. Jeremiah Johnson's head where from that point onwards, um he's constantly living a life with one eye forward and one eye back, where he is picked off by mostly individuals um who are associated with different, you know, this tribe of Indians who are dressed up in war paint and are trying to kill him. Um, and he ultimately comes back across his friend uh, uh, Delgu, and um, even they, <laughs> even there's a, a, a quite a surprising jump scare hunt sequence with with with, uh, with them. And then ultimately we find him at the very end of the movie, and I'm glossing over quite a lot here, but we find him kind of reuniting briefly, albeit briefly, with Bearclaw, uh, who kind of looks at how far the character has come and asks him, was it worth it? Because Bearclaw kind of tells him at the start, you know, that he could never find love and he could never do all these things on the mountain, it just wasn't for him, and it might not be for Jeremiah Johnson. And you know, you know, you've come a long way. Was it worth it? Um, and and Jeremiah Johnson surprisingly quiet about that. Um, at the very end of the movie, he comes across um, paints his shirt red, uh, who is an Indian that he meets kind of fairly on, and gives has met him twice in the movie before, um, but did a good deed for the Indians. At that point, you know, handed over the the carcass, the skin carcass of of one of the creatures they'd hunted, and um, they kind of trade um, an Indian sort of welcoming or kind of paying respect to each other, and that's where the movie finishes. Um, I thought it was shot beautifully. the The landscape in this movie is absolutely gorgeous, incredible to look at. Um, what I liked is that when it's snow and cold. I feel cold watching it, which I love about like if a movie can do that, then that you know that, that shows how much the impact of the scenery is working. I think Robert Redford plays a great part in it as well. Um, I think the characters that come across are wonderfully absurd. Uh, Bear Claw is obviously something that the Coen Brothers took on board when they did their remake of and the name of the movie escapes me. Fuck. True Grit. True Grit. Yeah. Because they come across a character who's very much Bearclaw um, in that movie, in a wonderfully weird Coen Brothers scene. And that's obviously influenced, must be, I would love to speak to the Coen Brothers and ask them, but must be influenced by this movie. The characters are so similar in quite a lot of respects um, that I would think that. Um, the the Stefan Gerish uh, performance of Delglu is wonderful. I think he's, the characters he comes across are like interesting characters. In the movie, which I think helps it. There's a lot of movies which are set about this time period where everyone's a bit beige. Um, and this movie doesn't suffer from that at all. I think that the the story itself is actually quite good, although I think the movie has some serious pacing issues, which we'll get on to. Um, but the, the idea of them 
finally kind of settling down with a woman that he didn't want anything to do with. He wanted to be a loner and then ended up almost having the family that he never expected he would have um, in this peaceful, kind of serene area where they're just living their lives and just doing what they need to do to survive and to basically be pulled back in to this this kind of idea of civilization, so to speak, and the effects of trying to go back to that life and not not paying attention to his you know, his experiences on the hill would have told him that they should never have went through where they went through, but ultimately he kind of caved and he paid for it. The, the consequences were quite bad. Um, I think that aspect of the movie is really interesting. The last 25 minutes of this movie are, to me, the bit that sells the movie, um, of him basically, you know, being hunted constantly towards the end of this movie. And, and, and kind of hunting fan- too. Like he's, and, oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he, he's on the yeah. warpath. Yeah, he, he goes to seek revenge. Um, and he doesn't have to go that far to find it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really like that aspect. And the fact that by the end of this movie, he's bas- basically become almost a kind of, an, <laughs> if you can have such a thing as an urban legend on a, on a mountaintop, but he's basically become this kind of mythical figure, um, respected by some Indian tribes, um, hunted by other Indian tribes, um, and known by white settlers um, as almost like a boogeyman story. Uh, I, I think that aspect's really good as well. And that's the good. There are a couple of things that I think I didn't enjoy as much. One's the pacing of the movie. I think there is a good 20 minutes in the middle of this movie where, and I know why, I know precisely why it's in the movie, and it's to build up this like idea of him kind of trying to get on with his his new bride and try to settle down and all the rest, I felt that that really dragged the momentum of the movie to... Because it's it's basically making him settle down. And the rest of the movie has never been about settling down. It's about moving forward. So it naturally slows the pace of the movie down. Um, I just felt that those scenes stayed a bit too long in the movie and you kind of have to pay your way through those two and to experience the end of the movie and i understand its, it's purpose there i just i i personally didn't i didn't i didn't think that worked all that well um there is some humor inserted into this movie which really doesn't work for me at all um and I, once again i know why it is there and i know uh, you know it's 1972 and the movie can't be without humor um, it kind of has to have that right, even even your Cowboys and Indians movies uh, your your Wild West movies and all that back then have this I just I, to me the, the humour doesn't work in the movie at all um, and at, at points it, it kind of made me cringe um, and I, I know we're saying yes it's great to have a theme you know that the character has a theme song it's not good the rest of the score, of movie, <laughs> the rest of the score of this movie is beautiful. It's like incredible, works well with the scenery and all the rest. And then this guy decides that he's going to sing a little song about what Jeremiah Johnson's doing. I don't want to hear that song uh, at all. Um, and that kind of irritated me. Out with that though, it's it's a pretty flawless movie. Um, like I say, some pacing issues aside, and the acting. Is, is incredible. I think Robert Redford brings in, and like, and uh, Robert Redford for me is an actor who 
who has very few black marks against his name. I genuinely think he's uh, one of those kind of... He's a dying breed in Hollywood, if you know what I mean, of those actors that you just put the camera on and you just believe who they are. Um, And I completely believe his character in this movie. And yeah, like like I say, some pacing issues, uh, humour did not like. And the theme song aside, I think it's a... A, a, a great movie and one that I would watch again actually I, I, I can see why like the, the common consensus of people online was that this is a movie they've seen many many times and uh, to me it's the sort of movie that you would shove on on a Sunday afternoon you know while you're yeah. waiting you're, while you, you've prepped your dinner you're waiting for your dinner to cook you would sit down and watch Jeremiah Johnson it kills the time in an enjoyable way well much like uh, your admission of it being a, a Sunday uh, kind of movie. Mm-hmm. My interpretation of what you're saying is this is a movie that yes, it. it I don't. I don't want to say that it has a lackadaisical pacing, mm-hmm. um, because I think especially the first act and and third act are very tightly paced. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is some stuff in the second act that is a little more casually paced, but it, uh, I don't think that's a problem. I think that's where you're supposed to be in the movie. Yeah, like well, you have, yeah, you have to go through that in order to have the impact of, of what he does in the final act. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I think that, I think you kind of need that. So it's not an issue for me personally. Um, the one thing that I would, add to your description of the film is much of the film concerns itself uh, and the, in the second movie as well with the idea of getting away from society. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm kind of paraphrasing an interview that Robert Redford had about this movie. So forgive me. Um, but if you want to look up, there's a Dutch interview with uh, Robert Redford about Jeremiah Johnson, where he, he talks about the societal implications of the film. And the idea is he's trying to remove himself from society, but the fatal flaw of that is that human beings are society. And the only way to not have such a thing is to remove yourself entirely from humanity. And he can't do that. You know, like even on the mountain, uh, and even though Bearclaw tells him, like, look, the, the, there's the rules of the world down there, and there's the rules of the mountain. But all you're doing is trading one society for another, yeah. not leaving it, which was the intended goal. And the society that he ends up creating for himself with, you know, the wife and child and, and you get the impression that there's an actual affection between his wife that was thrust upon him. Like they start to learn, uh, she learns a little English. He learns her language, uh, I think in more detail and, um, so he he ends up creating this society that he would have wanted, you know, that he's got these friends and he's got these trading partners. And uh, there's certainly a healthy respect for nature and, and its savagery as well as its beauty. And then he finds that when the old society intrudes upon this new society, the whole thing fucking crumbles. Right. Um, I, I think there are some interesting things being said in this film about, the fact that the nature of man is not so different depending like no matter what society you're talking about, the fundamental aspects of the human condition are the same. Um, that mm-hmm. we, we have the same sort of um, uh, 
you know, the, the, the same wants and desires and, and we also understand that the capacity for violence in this movie is always there that, yeah. you know, this, and again, we'll talk more about this in the second movie, uh, because that that's much more explicit there. But I think the final image of this encounter between him and, you know, one of the members of the Crowfoot tribe who are currently hunting him down. Mm-hmm. And there's still this, this respect between them as he becomes this, you know, uh, this mountain boogeyman. Um, I, I think that's I, really I interesting. Really expected, I really expected, and part of me feels slightly cheated, and I shouldn't because the ending works great. I love the ending. But what I expected was when he puts his hand up, he was going to get shot or killed. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah like yeah, yeah. almost, oh yeah, that was where I, that's what I expected to happen. And I could see, like, that's what I wanted to happen, kind of really. Um, but I could see that had that happened, I would be saying to you on here, oh, well, it gives you the predictable end. Part of me is really, part of me is really proud of the movie that it doesn't do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I want a clean ending to this movie. I, I like the fact that there's some ambiguity. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, to echo some of your points, but, uh, for emphasis, um, yeah, I do think it's beautiful to look at. I think Redford's great in it. Um, the guy ends up killing a bear in a shack and then has to defend himself from a wolf attack and go yeah. all the gray on a bunch of wolves. And then the next time you see him, he's just wearing a bunch of wolf fur because he's Jeremiah goddamn Johnson. It and becomes more like Bear Claw as it goes on, if you know what I mean, by the by yeah. the point that he has his shack and his his uh, his wife has made him the, 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 the coat and all the rest. He is the transformation. Another thing that I thought would have really worked, um not that I'm trying to change the movie, but just things <laughs> Jeremiah McLeish, let's go. <laughs> to me, I think had he had Bearclaw come to him the second time and we found that the Bearclaw actually didn't exist. You know, Bearclaw yeah, was him. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a, a, like a manifestation of of just who he was always going to be. Almost like a, a preordained destiny. Um, sure, the Bill Pullman to the later Balthazar Getty. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well played, sir. Well played. Um, yes, I, I, I think that equal. But now I'm just inserting things that I would really like to see in the movie, and that is not fair. That, that the movie wasn't made for me. In fact, it was made like nine years before I was born. Yeah. So it's kind of cheeky. But that to me, like, because he has by the end of the movie, for all intents and purposes, has become Bear Claw. He's just like. Um, Infinitely more hated and dangerous. Um, well, he kind, you know yeah, he's kind of a madman at the end of the movie. Like yeah, he's just he's a murderous awesome. madman. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, when they say a thing, every now and again, you'll hear somebody say when they watch a movie, like, ah, oh, well, they don't make them like that anymore. Yeah, and this is one of those movies. Yes, that, definitely, because it doesn't hurry itself when, like, it's not worried about the audience fallen asleep because it's like no 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 right around the corner is going to be some stuff that's worth the wait but you need you need to savor these moments because these are the things that make the rest of the movie tick yeah. um so yeah i i think it's 
I think it's a, a tremendous movie, and it's certainly like one of the great, in my mind, one of the great American films because it so represents that transition in movie making from you know the fifties and sixties to the seventies. And this is a much more like stark and, and, and dark, darkly toned, uh, sort of film like you get with, you know, Godfather and Conversation and, um, a lot of the, the Cassavetes films from the seventies and stuff that are all about yeah. these, you know, more, more uncomfortable human, uh, experiences. And I think Jeremiah Johnson isn't totally that. And it has some of the trappings of like the great Hollywood westerns. And it, it sort of has one foot in both of those cinematic eras. And I think it's, yeah. it's sort of fascinating on that level from a, without the story or acting or any of that, just what the movie represents, I think is kind of interesting. And then when you get into, oh, the movie is also thematically interesting and it's got great performances and it's great to look at. And aside from the theme song, which I still contend, no theme song is worse than a bad theme song, but. <laughs> Uh, the music by John Barry, who also did like Dances with Wolves and and that kind of thing, um, the music is fantastic, and it, like it's just a, a cinematic experience. Like when you come away from this, you feel like you've watched a goddamn movie. <laughs> you know, like this movie grabbed you and just carried you into into the Rockies with this character, who you slowly see go crazy, even though the movie never says it and doesn't make a big deal. But like I said, you know, at the end of this movie, Jeremiah Johnson is a murderous madman mm -hmm. and the movie just doesn't treat him that way. Yeah. And it, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's it, it, it is both aesthetically pleasing and intellectually interesting. What more can you ask uh, for from a movie? Mm -hmm. um, all right, Duncan. <laughs> Let's take a uh, a quick break here, and then we will uh, we will dive into your pick for me, uh, which is Nicholas Rogues. Uh, am I pronouncing the Rogue? I would think that's uh, that's uh, Rogue. Uh, Rogue is how I pronounce it, but that's from a Scotsman, so it, it might as well be something else. <laughs> okay, so Nicholas Rogue. I'm gonna go with the bastardized. Scottish pronunciation from Duncan, uh, but his film. Oh, you want to do that? I'll hold a grudge over you, so. Oh, speaking of, I watched The Grudge again recently. That's good. Uh, anyway, that's <laughs> my shit. There's like 40 of those movies, it turns out. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's Nicholas Rouge's uh, um, film, uh, Walkabout, uh, from 1971. Um, and we will get into... What makes that movie a survival movie, in my impressions, uh, God damn it! right after this. Hello? Hello, who is this? Who are you trying to reach? I don't know. Um, I think you've got the wrong number. Do I? I'm going to hang up. Wait, don't hang up. What's that noise? Popcorn? You're making popcorn. Uh-huh. I'm about to listen to a podcast. Oh, really? Which one? Probably the podcast on Haunted Hill. Is that the one with the two guys with the beards? Uh, yeah, Dan and Gav. Dan and Gav. Yeah, that podcast was scary. I liked it. 
Most episodes, they look at two different horror movies. Each episode, they look at a world of a strange, where they look at weird things from around the world. Sometimes, they even do special episodes where they look at different genres or directors' discographies and talk about them. Do you have a boyfriend? Maybe. So where can I find the podcast on Haunted Hill? Well, you can go to legionpodcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, or just go into iTunes and search for the podcast on Haunted Hill. So, are you going to ask me out? And welcome back. So, we have, uh, we've looked at Bo's movie. Now it's time to turn to mine. Um, and this was really interesting, actually, because I had quite the list of survival movies, and it turns out Bo had seen most of them. Um, so, this is one I would have thought you've seen. Like, I, I would almost put money on it that you'd seen this movie, but kind of like the conversation... Uh, this is one that opportunistically landed in my lap, and it's 1971's Walkabout uh, by Nicholas Roche. Now, this is technically his directorial debut because the movie that he did before this movie, um, he actually did as a co-director, which was performance. Um, so this is his like directorial debut, and that in itself blows my mind. But for those out there that don't know who Nicholas Roche is, uh, and you listen to this show, you call yourself a cinephile. How dare you? Uh, <laughs> you bastards. Um, the guy directed arguably one of my favourite horror movies of all time and Don't Look Now. Uh, but he also did movies like The Man Who Fell to Earth, The Witches, Eureka. Uh, you know, he's, he's like really kind of known for his more kind of... Well, I don't think we're stretching to say this. Art house aesthetic, um, which, which he brings to his movies. And there's a lot of it on display here in Walkabout. So uh, let me give you some information about it. Um, so it was, like I say, directed by Nicholas Roge, based on the novel by James Vance Marshall and the screenplay written by Edward Bond. Um, this stars a very young um, Jenny... I can never pronounce her surname. Aguter, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah, or Aguter, maybe. Yeah, Aguter. She is, I think, it's caused a bit of controversy, actually, about her nude scenes. I think she's maybe 17 in this movie, potentially. Which, I don't know how that affects things in the States, but it's frowned upon in the UK. Um, and also, I believe this is his son, Luke Roche, plays the, the little white boy in this one. Yeah. Uh, also a producer on uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Right, Kevin, which, yeah, yeah. which is, uh, we've talked about that in this show before, incredible. Um, but yeah, the, the story synopsis is a list on the IMDb's is two young siblings are stranded in the Australian outback and are forced to cope on their own when they meet an Australian boy on a walkabout a ritual separation from his tribe um, that kind of accurate doesn't <laughs> I love it they're stranded uh, it kind of makes it sound a bit more innocent <laughs> actually right, they end up stranded right. <laughs> it's, it's quite dark and um, in order to put forward this dark scenario I will turn the floor over to you Bo this is your first time viewing of Walkabout let me know what you think and I'll come back in with my points at the end alright um, you want to do a clip real quick Yes, that's a good point. You told me not to forget that there was a clip. Um, so let me just say right now, uh, we're going to play a clip for it. And when we come back, Bo is going to lead us on the review right after this. I want to think! Well, if the others can't wait, stop it! 
fish. Do you understand? This is Australia, yes? Where is Adelaide? Ask him for water! Water. Drink. We want water to drink. You must understand. Anyone can understand that. We want to drink. I can't make it any simpler. Water. To drink. The water hole has dried up. Where do they keep the water? <laughs> All right. Fucking hell. <laughs> Can't follow instructions. Um, it's because you. It's because I, I refuse to play ball ball. <laughs> I, I know you're you're a bit of a rogue, which is why you uh, you make. The, you are the Creole spice of the show. Something, <laughs> so, something unexpected. It's like, oh, well, that's a little sassy. <laughs> it's, I'm the Creole spice on the shrimp given to Pierce Brosnan and Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm really pleased that we have mentioned both um, Mulholland Drive. Uh, or refer to Mulholland Drive and Mrs. Doubtfire within the context of the same show. Yeah, it shows how it shows how wide berth our show actually is. Right, big tent show. That's what I like. Uh, speaking of big tents, Duncan. Oh yes. Uh, boy, could they have used one? He says hamfistedly in in Walkabout. Um, so so Walkabout. <laughs> it's a professional at work. Uh, walkabout is um all right so as 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 mentioned we have uh the the character uh that jenny jenny agater plays uh i'm gonna use the horrible american pronunciation and and someone can correct uh me later but um all right so she and her younger brother are out in theoretically having a picnic in the outback in australia with her father um, who may have the hots for his daughter based on a couple of shots. I mean, there's a lot of interpretation to be done in this film. And, and my interpretation is that his actions are the result of his shame. Ah, right. So basically he takes, uh, the father takes his children out into uh, the middle of nowhere. And as a, a, perfectly delightful lunch is being prepared. Um, then he starts taking pot shots at the sun and demands that the, uh, the kids come out when they, they start hiding behind some rocks and whatnot. And then he ends up setting the car on fire and shooting himself. Uh, once again, I assume, uh, this is all shame based, mm -hmm. but, uh, which strands, you know, the girl and her brother, uh, in the outback with uh, no clear path home and uh, dwindling supplies. And they uh, they are, are struggling to survive in this scenario. Um, fortunately, they come upon um, uh, an Aborigine boy who is on his walkabout, which is, uh, I guess we should explain, the walkabout in, in the title is mm -hmm. a a traditional ceremony for uh, the, the Aboriginal tribe of this character where sort of on the precipice of manhood, yeah. uh, the, the character uh, 
of the boy is kind of thrust out of his tribe. And you don't see any of this. We, we just, you know, are meant to uh, infer uh, from the goings on of the film and, and the title card up front that he's on his walkabout. Um, he is, he is there to survive off the land. And after a time he can return home, uh, to his tribe, having successfully passed this rite of, of, of passage into manhood, uh, mm-hmm. by learning to survive on his own. And, uh, he runs across, uh, the, the English boy and girl here, um, who are at the, at the verge of death. I mean, the, the best they've done is they found, uh, a temporary oasis that has dried up on them. And they are very near uh, extermination. And he comes along and, you know, helps them survive and he hunts and, and, and so forth. And in theory is guiding them back to civilization. Mm-hmm. Although it's not clear that he understands that. Yeah. And because there is this obvious language gulf. And unlike Jeremiah Johnson, in which over time we see... Um, you know, the character of Jeremiah Johnson learned some of, of the uh, Native American languages uh, in, in from the characters in which he interacts or with which he interacts. <clears throat> but uh, Walkabout's a different scenario. Like, we don't we don't understand him ever. There are no subtitles or anything. It's just him talking his crazy booga booga language. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably an unfair characterization. <laughs> Um, no, it's just uh, like he, he is speaking, you know, his native aboriginal tongue and much like the characters of <laughs> the, uh, the characters of, you know, the boy and girl, the English boy and girl, we understand them just fine. Right. So the point of that, Duncan, despite your hilarity is <laughs> I can't breathe. <laughs> that really got you. Okay. <laughs> oh God. Oh. <sighs> <laughs> so much of this movie, in my mind, Duncan, is mm-hmm. about communication. Um. So there is the the. The idea of the modern world, the civilized world, intruding on the the wild savagery of the uh, Australian outback, and you know, the, there's a lot of shots in this movie, a lot of shots in this movie of animals in the outback just eating one another. Mm-hmm. Um, there are shots where we see um, the the Aboriginal boy. You know, the, the characters aren't named, so forgive me. Um, but the, the Aboriginal boy, um, hunting, you know, with spears, which by the way, I was never really clear on how you hunt with a spear. And <laughs> this movie went a long way towards like, oh, you just gotta have a bunch of them. And, <laughs> and like the first one is probably not gonna take them down, but it's gonna, you know, line you up for the next shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty fascinating. But we also get, uh, you know, as, as the boys hunting, um, and, you know, sort of skinning and, and, and separating the limbs of the animals that he's hunted, uh, including some kangaroos, which is just tragic. Um, mm-hmm. but you get intercut shots of like a butcher in a butcher shop doing the same thing. And, you know, it, at a certain point in this movie, I'm not going to lie. I, I was like, you know what? I get it. I understand that there is a unifying 
principle at work between mm-hmm. the the behavior of this character in the Outback and modern life. Like we have, we have certainly constructed our world, our civilized world in a way that we hide from ourselves much of the savagery that goes along with just consuming food. Like we don't necessarily think about the food being cut up and whatnot. Uh, and the living thing that existed prior to the delicious ground beef that we have here. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of, of the natural world being a savage and, and ultimately uncaring place. So, you know, it is sort of, uh, to go back to a reference point that I enjoy, there is something almost Lovecraftian in a weird way <laughs> about nature as presented in this film in that it is yeah. this uncaring force that, you know, if you survive, well, that's kind of up to you, you know, like nature is not going out of its way to help you. And in fact, in most cases is if it doesn't care about you, you're getting off easy. And sometimes it's just, you know, trying to murder you. Um, so throughout the course of the film, you know, we, we get these glimpses of, uh, the Aboriginal boy leading them closer and closer to civilization. And much of the meat of the movie, I think comes when they run across a, a, this abandoned house Mm -hmm. where, um, it, you know, it's ramshackle, it's falling apart, but it is, it is a sign of civilization. It is, it's a sign that they're, they're returning to the modern world. But it is also here where we start to see the, the conflict between these two worlds and these characters. And there's this underlying sexual tension, uh, between, uh, the English girl and the Aboriginal boy. I mean, they're yeah. both of the age where hormones are just going ape shit in their bodies. And there's an attraction between them. You know, there's something that the, the character that Jenny Agater plays, um, where she seems to, if not admire is at least intrigued by this sort of physical freedom that the Aboriginal boy represents. Like he's not afraid of exposing himself, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't mean just genitalia cause you know, I do that too, but, <laughs> um, just, you know, wearing very little clothing and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are these moments that are almost, uh, biblical in their representation of, you know, the free, um, it, it's sort of like a kind of romantic era poetry in a way mm. of just celebrating nature and the, the natural form and that kind of thing. Um, and once we get to this house, you know, this sexual tension continues, but the Jenny Agater character finds a box that has all these portraits and it's, you know, people dressed very primly and properly and, uh, a bunch of white faces. There sure, uh, isn't anything but in that mix. And she has kind of a breakdown and you get this sense, or I did at least that this is her realizing, well, this is the world that waits for me. Mm-hmm. And is that a good thing? There's, there's a really interesting question of at a certain point, do they want to return to society? Um, but eventually they do, but only after Duncan, there is a dance number, uh, <laughs> poorly choreographed, choreographed, if you ask me, um, in which the Aboriginal boy, after um, 
what seems okay let me take a half step back there's a conversation (laughs) that the girl has with the aboriginal boy and by conversation i mean he says a bunch of stuff in -hmm. his aboriginal language and there seems to be in my mind the there's kind of a sweetness and i i think he's honestly telling her not in you know sort of modern civilization terms that like, hey, I think you're really interesting, and I think maybe we have something in common, you know. But I think it's the weird equivalent of that, mm-hmm. um, where he is expressing fondness for her. She has certainly shown fondness for him. They've seen each other in the buff, um, and understand that they have appropriately interlocking parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, they're teenagers. They're they're DTF, Duncan, as all teenagers are. <laughs> Uh, but they don't in this film. And there's, uh, the moment where the Aboriginal boy, um, dons the, the paint and, and flowers and whatnot of, uh, his tribe in an attempt to communicate, see, mm-hmm. um, to the girl his intentions and his interest. But she has no tool set to respond to this. She has no ability to be certain of what this expressive dance is trying to tell her. I think it's fairly obvious. It's, it seems very much like a fertility kind of dance to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but she either doesn't recognize it or chooses not to recognize it for what it is, or certainly not to accept the advances. And as a result, the the kid, uh, the Aboriginal boy just dances until he passes the fuck out at a certain point, just can't move anymore. Like does it all night long. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, the next day when they're, they're close enough to a road, they found a road at this point and the kids are about to hit the road literally and find their way back to civilization. And the, uh, they find the boy dead. The Aboriginal boy is, uh, has basically Christ like, um, hung himself from, from this tree. And, Therein lies my communication interpretation of this film in which, you know, based on either the inability or unwillingness to find common ground in terms of their communication with one another, one person is dead. Uh, the girl and boy kind of continue on and, and make their way back to uh, the modern world. But in my mind, there's kind of a question left of like, what have, what have they abandoned? What have they gained? What have they lost? Um, I think these are all interesting questions. I don't think there are clear answers. Um, I do think that there's the impression I have that once they return to the modern world and, and the final images of the movie are of, uh, the Jenny Agutter's character later on in life. Uh, married and with her husband who is just prattling on about stuff that you couldn't possibly care about. And there's kind of a look in her eyes. Like, you know, she, she has touched savage nature, Duncan and, and Mm -hmm. cannot, even though she may repress it as do we all, um, she can't ever truly escape it and probably has come closer than most of us to embracing, uh, the the pure nature of man as a, a as a human animal in a way that uh, that most of us cannot appreciate yeah. and, and it and it haunts her you know 
uh, as I'm sure does the death of, of the boy, even though, you know, it's a, they're like her character is so British in this movie. It's very stiff upper lip and like, <laughs> yeah. make sure you've got your coat on. And like when they know they're marching back to civilization, they're putting on, you know, the school uniform coats and stuff. And, um, it's really fascinating. Like, uh, the, the movie, there was a point while I was watching the movie, this movie where I became very angry with Duncan. Be- angry with me? Yes, because of how gorgeous a movie it is. Mm-hmm. First of all, like much like Jeremiah Johnson, the, the two do share a lot of DNA. Like yeah. they're both beautifully shot. They're both beautifully acted. Even the the little boy in this movie, um, uh, Nicholas Rogue's son, um, I think is is actually not irritating, which most child actors are. <laughs> That was my only concern about you watching this movie was I was fairly convinced that little kid may annoy you. No, I, I actually like that character a lot. And I like the fact that he is the one who comes closest to sort of understanding the Aboriginal boy. And they, they share some common vocabulary with one another mm-hmm. and, and a means to communicate. Um, yeah, I thought that was I, I think he's surprisingly fine in it. Um, and, and his character is interesting, but really the movie is kind of the dynamic of, uh, the girl and the aboriginal boy. And, and it's a, a really interesting relationship at times. It's really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, just because it's hard as an adult, when you're talking about like teenage girls blossoming sexuality at a certain point, you're like, where is the line where I'm just a pervert when I'm thinking about this? And where am I thinking about the human condition? Um, but you know, I mean, she's a beautiful young girl and, and, um, there is, it's just fascinating because there's something taboo about it, not just because she's underage, but you know, because it is the blurring of cultures and, you know, um, it, it, yeah, it's a really interesting movie. But like I said, I got mad about halfway through the movie because I was like, wow, this is really beautiful and deep. And the characters are, are surprisingly rich. And the direction of the movie it, at times gets to be a bit Baroque, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, Rogue is definitely like, okay, kids, remember, this is metaphor. Um, there, <laughs> there, there's some stuff that happens where I'm like, I, I get it. You don't have to be so overt in your presentation of this as, as being, uh, an artsy fartsy kind of movie. I get that it is. Um, and also your, your comments about nature, like after the fifth or so shot of a lizard eating another lizard, I was like, I get it. You don't have to do this again, <laughs> but it, it still happens. Um, but that's kind of, it's a mild complaint of a director over explaining his, his motifs that he's using in a movie. Yeah, like yeah. like I'm, I'm being a little bitch about like, you know what? He really is making a lot of fascinating points about humanity and our cultural differences, <laughs> but at the at the same time that we're all kind of the same. Uh, but could you maybe just tone it down a little? Um, so yeah, it's... I think I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it's the first movie. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think a lot of directors at their their first movie kind of really don't understand that you do not need to beat the audience into submission with a point. You know, yeah. what I mean, you can, you can, and you certainly by the time you reach like a movie like Don't Look Now, um, which is only a couple of years later, yeah. there is a lot of imagery about like religion and grief, which is far more. Subtly placed in that movie, and you can see he's obviously 
it's something he takes forward into future things. But yeah, I, I would agree with that. That's probably my only gripe at all with this movie is that the first, especially in the first half an hour of the movie, with the the playing of the the, the radio reports and the uh, you know the imagery the juxtaposition of of what's happening in the civilized world to the savage world it's so thick and so heavy that you, you know you do kind of feel like if you haven't picked up on the point just now then I don't know what else he has to do maybe stand with a neon sign <laughs> right individually come to the viewers' homes person <laughs> to person and just be like are okay did you get this. Um, you know, they're, they're, but at the same time, not having the deftest touch with a very artistic film, uh, you know, how much of a complaint is that really? Yeah. It, it really is, you know, splitting hairs in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a gorgeous movie. It is, it's fascinating. It, it clocks in, uh, about 20 minutes shorter than Jeremiah Johnson. So. If you wanted to do a double feature, uh, I would say you start with Jeremiah Johnson and then yeah. end up here. Um, it's it's fantastic. It's a great movie. You know, it's it's a great director. Um, I think both films this week, unlike some weeks, uh, hit the theme square on the head. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's a tough call because I think the movies are doing similar things. And I think they both achieve what they set out to do in a very artistic fashion. Yeah. Um, I think, I think Rogue's movie is a little more obviously artistic in its, uh, execution. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think Jeremiah, Jeremiah Johnson is any less artistic for that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great movie, Duncan. God damn it. <laughs> um, it's, it's real, real good. Um, any, anything that you want to, Tell me I got wrong before we hash this out. Uh, not, not really. Um, I think you pretty much come away from the movie kind of thinking pretty much how I think about it. I, I, I think it's... I it's an amazing movie, <laughs> but I, I'm a big fan of of uh, Nicholas Rose as a director. I think he's, like I said earlier on, he's made some of my like all-time favourite movies and... He, he does have a, a particular message he wants to get across in this one. Um, I've never read the original source material. Um, apparently, in the source material, it makes more sense. Although we've we've walked away with the same understanding, it makes more sense as to why the Aboriginal boy um, dies. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's kind of a shame thing for him, right? Like, like I have, I have courted this girl. Yeah. I have been rejected, and therefore, yeah, you know, it, that's, yeah. yeah. So I and I I mean um, the the, the kind of interesting aspect to me when you're comparing these two movies is the the kind of dichotomy of where both characters end up at the end, both of our main characters end up at the end, where the experiences in the wild have ultimately crazed Robert Redford's character. Um, to put he is a crazy man living on a mountain, like fighting for survival, <laughs> right, right, like, for 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 all time. And the girl in Walkabout has touched that, has went back to civilization, but longs and that final kind of imagined dream longs for the time that she was back there. So she almost wants to go back to that more simpler time for her. Um, in that final image, she she sees herself and her brother back with the Aboriginal boy um, in a scene which we don't see anywhere else in the movie. So um, 
Unless I missed it. Uh, no, no, no. I, I think it's her imagination of what could have happened had she stayed. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's I think that's quite interesting that, you know, the, the two experiences of survival, albeit tragic for both parties, um, are two characters in, up in completely different places. <laughs> Almost like if Jeremiah Johnson had listened to the advice earlier on in the movie and had rejoined civilization would he have longed for a more simpler time on the mountain having not went through what he yeah. did go through you know what i mean is is that is that we were um our characters are are ultimately aided and helped by the aboriginal boy um they're never truly out with i was going to say they're never truly in peril out with starvation heat <laughs> and drought they're sure. never really truly in peril but you know I mean there's not obviously they don't have grizzly bears attacking them or, or anything like that but their experiences they at least get to experience the life of you know an aborigine which you know it is for all intents purposes a, a better experience than Robert Redford has about being a settler on a mountain so you know yeah, I think maybe the the takeaway for both of these movies, strangely, is the lesson is the same, uh, mm-hmm. which is there is a dichotomy in man, uh, and by which I mean humanity, not just dudes. But <laughs> there's a dichotomy in the human condition where we long for the simplicity or the perceived simplicity of a natural life. Mm-hmm. But... It's not, it's not true. Like that there is no such thing as a simple life. Like the Aboriginal boy has all these tools at his disposable, at his disposal to survive in this world mm-hmm. and, and helps them survive. But it's not an easy life. It's no. just a different life. Yeah. And, and we always kind of want the other thing, you know, like she, she is obviously affected by the, the death of the Aboriginal boy in the in the film, and and has this sort of romanticized view of what could have been. But I mean, she went back. She didn't, you know. Yeah. Like after his, like she didn't accept the uh, obvious invitation that he was giving her, even though she was. I, I feel like. Uh, uh, certainly, somewhat seduced by it, but but not fully. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think both movies kind of end in strangely the same way, which is yeah. you can't. The two things aren't as different as they seem. Mm-hmm. You know that the the law the same rules apply in both versions of these societies, which is this very natural order sort of survival of the fittest thing, and um, even in in her somewhat protected life at the end of the movie, the, the character that Jenny Agutter's playing, um, you know, she can't escape the, the, this side of herself, but mm-hmm. I don't, you know, she didn't choose it. And, and there's also, I mean, on some level, the, the image that she has in her head is a very romanticized version of the experience she went through. You know, as yeah, right, for right. looking around, um, at, you know, at this the, the, this large pool of water, and she's not necessarily remembering the full experience. She's like everyone does, focusing on the the better aspects of their time, as opposed to focusing on the reality of the situation. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, 
it, yeah, it's an interesting pairing of films for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really, I like, I like that these movies are so similar, but take such different paths to ultimately a very, if, if not the same place, at least a, a place adjacent to one another. Yeah. Um, and, and on the thematic scale, but, uh, but it, it's pretty good. So, um, okay. <laughs> very commanding. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> Both of these movies are worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, all right. So here's, here's I, love what, you, I love it when you do this, and I yeah, don't. I, I, well, it, I imagine this is what you're like when I go through this. So it it makes me so mad because okay. I I love both of these movies. Um, I'm really looking forward to like watching Walkabout and. Uh, in the future and the perspective I have on it, either changing or solidifying based on repeat viewings of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't have the luxury of having seen this movie five or six times and being able to say like over time, my, my position has changed on the meaning of this movie. Um, but I think that it has an incredible depth to it. Uh, and not that Jeremiah Johnson doesn't, but I think Jeremiah Johnson is more, more of a straightforward narrative with interesting thematic hooks. Mm-hmm. And I think walkabout is a more artistic film or a more artistically presented film that I kind of, I, I, I sort of prefer it only because it wears its artsy fartsiness on its sleeve mm-hmm. uh, and, and enjoys being a little obtuse at times and allowing for some pretty radically different interpretations. Like I could see where someone uh, saw the, the events that unfold at, at the abandoned house in a completely different way. Yeah. And I like that. Like I, I, I like you know, I like the ambiguity of this movie because it it is more it it, it happen it, it's more whole cloth. Like the whole movie is a bit ambiguous at times mm-hmm. in, in terms of how it's viewing its characters, and I don't necessarily feel like Jeremiah Johnson does that. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's a very a very clear narrative for most of it. So, um, I you know I would say that the better movie. By by a nose, Duncan <laughs> is walkabout. <laughs> but I don't think it's as dramatic a difference as you might have initially implied. I don't think the two movies are that far from each other in terms of the quality of the films. No, 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 definitely not, definitely not. Um, I mean, like my my pick, and I may have given it away on Facebook. My pick is walkabout, but that maybe was put forward in a way where I was just like, oh, I'm so confident that, you know, like this is like a, it's a slam dunk. And it's not, it really isn't. Jeremiah Johnson, to me, was a really enjoyable watch. Um, and it should be an enjoyable watch because there's so many parties involved with it that I enjoy. Um, and it, it definitely, it delivers on what I want in a movie like that. It, it, it really... The, the the 
the very few gripes I had about that movie are things which I understand completely why they're there. So once again, this comes down to this kind of personal. It's not. It's not the movie's fault for any of that. It's just I would prefer it not like that. But I understand completely why it has to be there for a narrative purpose. Out with the theme song, and why it needs to be there for a narrative purpose. It has to do that to get you to where you need to go later on in the movie, and that's why it slows down in the second act. It needs to do that. Um, I would prefer it to continue moving at a pace, but I understand why it can. Um, Walkabout, to me, once again, is not a perfect movie either. Like we were talking about, it really does hammer home this this idea of of how differences aren't that different uh, when put side by side it really kind of it, it, it brings a sledgehammer to put in a drawing pin, you know, at, at times. But you kind of hit the nail on the head as to why I I prefer it, and it and it is like by that nose um, going over is that to me Walkabout is a movie that I've went back to two or three times in in my 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 lifetime. Um, and it's not that I come away with different things, but I feel myself focusing on different aspects of the movie. Whereas I know pretty much for a fact that when I watch Jeremiah Johnson for the next time, I will have the same experience, albeit as enjoyable as, as it is. It's a movie that has a very clear narrative and it follows that narrative. And that's what that movie should have. It shouldn't have all these kind of obtuse angles or anything like that, which I do think Walkabout does. I also think Walkabout, works surprisingly well considering how simple the movie actually is. I mean, there really isn't that much that happens in Walkabout at all. But, but everything it, it happens, Duncan. Well, it's theatre of the mind. It, it's, yeah, it is. It lends itself to so much depth that you then put in yourself. I, I, I mean, I, I, I do think this is the sort of movie where how you are feeling that day or your experiences that week will... will impact your viewing of Walkabout. I do think that. I, I do think that your mindset going into a movie like this will reflect on what you see. It's that sparse at times that you will start putting so much of yourself into it. Um, and those movies tend to be, for people that have listened to the show, tend to be the ones that I gravitate to more. Um, so yeah, I think it's a better movie. I don't think it's by much. Um, and it goes to show that if you want a really good survival film, early 70s is where you do it. <laughs> a year apart from yeah. a year apart from these movies, and both of them cover very similar grounds in completely different ways, but with very similar messages, which I think is a credit to the the language of cinema and the language of the ability to put forward a movie about survival. Like a true story about survival is the one that makes you question man's journey once again the universal man, meaning women as well. Uh, man's journey, man's struggle. Um, for survival, I think is is universal, regardless whether it's looking at at rich <laughs> or middle class English children living in Australia being trapped in the outback, or whether it's like hardened ex soldiers trying to fend for themselves and carve out a life on a on a hillside, I think, um, or a mountaintop. I think it's uh, I think the the language is very similar, if if not, the movie's moving off in slightly different directions. Um, but yeah, Walkabout's a movie I would pick, and it, yeah, it isn't it isn't it isn't a, a huge gulf between the two. It's very close. Yeah, and I think the big takeaway for our listeners um, is that no matter how you may try, you can never resolve uh, for yourself or or loved ones. 
um, the the constant struggle between the civilized and the natural. Yeah. Um, so quit trying. Um, <laughs> it's never going to happen. It's just a conflict you're going to have to uh, learn to exist with. Um, and that's the kind of philosophy we like to bring on this show, Duncan, is a bit of fatalism, a bit of uh, uh, the notion that no matter how one might try, we can't escape the icy grip of death or the... Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we will forever be tormented by the the dichotomy that is the the human. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, on that note, next week we're going to do comedies. Uh, <laughs> the, the next the next episode is proven to be an absolute blinder as well. Um, people out there will be surprised when they hear the movie that you selected for me and be very surprised that I've never seen it before. So yeah, it is. Yeah, it is surprising, but we'll we'll get to that next week. Um, first, Duncan, uh, where can people find you uh, out and about in the world? Um, well, uh, if you want, you can check out my main show. That's the podcast Under the Stairs. We have a website, tputzcast.com. We're on iTunes. We're a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. Um, we're doing a lot of quirky, fun things at the moment. Um, the episode that will be dropping probably just before this episode drops. Um, I'm joined by my old podcasting buddy, Andy Blockley, from the Big Horror and Little Podcast, and formerly of Doing the Nasty. And we're looking at a couple of movies that co- uh, cover serial killers and surprisingly accurate, gruesome ways uh, as we look at Henry, portrait of a serial killer, and Tony, serial killer from London. Um, both movies are... Uh, pretty fucking fantastic so um, it was a really good show so that'll be dropping and then very shortly after that you'll be getting a new Baz V Horror where Baz tackles some cannibal horror movies as we look at Cannibal Ferox we'll look at Ravenous and finish off with Eli Roth's Green Inferno Um, I have another show it's called Chronicle Um, the last episode will be probably out just after this this show drops Um, I'm closing out season one which was looking at European vampire movies by looking at a little movie called Let the Right One In. So check that one out. That one's exclusively on Legion Podcast Network. Excellent. Um, uh, Now's the time for you to to tell people about their new favourite show that they don't know. It's their new favourite show, but it will be their new favourite show. Alright, your your new favourite show that you don't know that you have yet, uh, (laughs) which will be premiering on April 12th. Uh, on the Legion Podcasts uh, network. Um, it is called Hero Hero Go Show, uh, which the more I say it, the more I love it. I, I, I can't, <laughs> I do find it to be kind of wonderful. Uh, it is a, a celebration, Duncan, uh, of Asian horror films. Um, and that means, you know, the, the Japanese, you get your J horror, you get your K horror, uh, you got Vietnam pitching in here and there. Uh, you got Thai horror films, Duncan, some of them come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to be talking about a bunch of those and, uh, the premiere episode, uh, will, uh, just because it seems like it's only fate, uh, <laughs> will be you and I, Duncan, discussing, mm-hmm. um, audition, the, uh, Takashi Miyiki, uh, film and, I, you know, I am surprised. I, I'll one quick aside. So there is a uh, a poll up for people's favorite Asian horror films in the the Facebook uh, group for the Hero Hero Go Show um, program, and Audition has done surprisingly poorly 
<laughs> on that list, and I can't wait for the show to air. Yeah, so I think can I, explain why that is not right. Yeah, I, th- I think um, for a l- in a lot of respects, people forget how important audition actually is. I think the impact of, and we will get into a lot of detail. I think on this one, I think the reason people are so aware of J horror and K horror and all the other ones that come out from that that area of the world is because how successful audition was and the benchmark it set. Um, Takashi Miki is probably arguably one of the most important filmmakers um, from you know from that from the east to have made an impact and shift a cultural perspective from the west to the east. Um, yeah, yeah, I I would say he and uh, Hideo Nakata mm-hmm. um, are the two directors that are most responsible for modern appreciation of Asian horror. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think on that level, audition becomes too obvious a pick for most people. <laughs> right, right. You know it's, like, I mean? it becomes, oh. it's like, yeah, it's like saying The Exorcist is the greatest horror movie. You yeah. know what I mean? You get to that point where you're just like, yeah, you know what I mean? It just, it's so obvious. Oh, yeah, but, well, I like Tokyo Gore Police, um, <laughs> which I'm fine with. That's episode two. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's going to be a rotating series of hosts. You are uh, co-hosts. You will be the, the first of those. And, um, and for listeners of this show, it is going to be a different thing. It's not, it's going to be a different format. Uh, even though we are talking, uh, Duncan and I are, are talking about a movie again. Um, I think, I think you'll enjoy it. So, uh, it'll be out April 12th. Give it a shot. Uh, if you enjoy the Asian horror films or if you don't, um, maybe this will, uh, give you a bit of an appreciation. Yeah. 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 I think it's the start. I think if anything, it's still a genre, which is, I think a lot of people think J horrors kind of stopped because you just don't hear about the movies anymore. That, that country, that whole like continent, um, of Asia is still putting out fantastic movies. You just have to dig a bit deeper for them. Yeah. Yeah. It, what and the show is actually going to get into some of the the reasons why that is and and why some things are more available than others and and that kind of thing. So I, I think it's going to be informative um, as well as entertaining. I hope the uh, the other shows you can find me on um, Duncan and Bo come correct this very show, uh, which if you're listening to now, good job. And uh, the uh, Shotcast uh, is the video game. Uh, program that I do, uh, you can find that on legionpodcasts.com as well. Uh, if you want to hear me yap about the, the games and, uh, I think that's it. I don't know. I keep forgetting what my life is sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's just like, like this constant treadmill of like, here are the 10 things in front of me that I need to get done. And if, if they're not in the top 10 on a given day, then they just don't exist much like you know, a child that hasn't learned object permanency yet. I'm just like, <laughs> okay, if, if, if there's a show that I'm not currently working on, it doesn't exist until I need to work on it again. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, we thank you very much for listening to this show. Uh, the score now is tied once more. Oh, with three episodes left with, with three episodes remaining. We are back to a tie. Um, I'm really excited about, the end of this season. And we, as I said in the upfront, uh, for you listeners who have been joining us along the way, we are going to, uh, do our level best to get these out in a timely fashion. So mm-hmm. no more, no more screwing around, no more waiting, Duncan. It's going to be every fortnight, a, a punch <laughs> in the gut at DBCC, right, right in the bread basket. And 
you're gonna you're gonna be just punch drunk with goodness uh, for all the <laughs> movies we talk about and uh, and of course the entertaining conversation that ensues. So um, thanks very much for listening. Um, anything else from you, Duncan? Before we get out of here. Just thanks very much for checking out the show. We are so overjoyed to be back. Can't wait to speak to you all in a couple of weeks' time. All right. That uh, is echoed for me. Thanks very much, and we'll see you in a fortnight. Bye. At first I was afraid. I was petrified. I kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights just thinking how you'd done me wrong. I grew strong. I learned how to get along. And so you're back from outer space. I just walked in to find you here without that look upon your face. I should have changed my fucking lock. I would have made you leave your key if I'd have known for just one second you'd be back to 